Well, I'd like to call the hearing to order. This is a um, hearing of the Senate Foreign Relations Subcommittee on Western Hemisphere, Transnational Crime, Civilian Security, Democracy, Human Rights, and Global Women's Issues. Senator Rubio, I think we have the honor of the subcommittee with the longest name of any in the Senate. Hearing will come to order, and it is a pleasure to welcome two distinguished panels of witnesses for this hearing on vaccine diplomacy in Latin America and the Caribbean and the importance of U.S. engagement in the region. I want to thank Ranking Member Senator Rubio and his team for helping, in develop, help, uh, helping develop this hearing and for always advancing the important work of this subcommittee and always having a passion for the region. Americans have learned a lot of hard lessons since the COVID-19 pandemic first reached our shores in early 2020, the importance of a strong public health system, the vulnerability of and the valuable work performed by our essential health workers, disparities in our economic system that can be exacerbated by unforeseen crises, the effectiveness of vaccines, and the difficulties of achieving political consensus even when faced with a common threat. Another lesson the pandemic has taught us is that we are inextricably linked to other nations, particularly our neighbors in the Americas. Um, disease doesn't stop at borders. Our health, to a degree, depends on the health of our brothers and sisters in Latin America and the Caribbean. Latin America and the Caribbean has suffered greatly during the pandemic, more than a million and a half um, dead, um, tens of millions of cases. Uh, 30% of the deaths in the world attributed to pandemic are in the Caribbean and the Americas uh, with only 8% of the population. And so this has been a region that's been hit particularly hard. I saw some of the effects of the pandemic firsthand in the region this summer when I joined Senator Portman and four other Senate colleagues in a bipartisan CODEL to visit Mexico, Ecuador, Colombia, and Guatemala. We talked in those nations about the effect of the pandemic, uh, but we also heard the gratitude of these nations for U.S. vaccine diplomacy in the region, uh, a common story. And we were arriving in capitals and talking to presidents at about the same time as significant American vaccines uh, were arriving to be distributed in these countries, a common story that we heard was that when it comes to vaccines, we think the American vaccines are the best and you're giving them to us. Um, we are getting vaccines from China, Russia that we are purchasing and sometimes the shipment gets delayed. And in the instance of China, if we happen to say something about Taiwan, the contract will mysteriously disappear and we'll never get vaccines. And so there was a, a real window that was opening, we viewed in the Americas because there was gratitude for the US role in delivering now, I believe, nearly 50 million vaccines uh, into the Americas and the Caribbean. But there's much more to do. We have stepped up to provide support to our southern neighbors. It was a little belated uh, because we wanted to take care, obviously, of our own needs first. But distribution of vaccines and other humanitarian aid, uh, most notably through sharp increase in funding through the American Rescue Plan, has started to flow. More needs to be done. While the U.S. initially focused on overcoming the public health crisis at home, outside actors like China and Russia have taken this opportunity to exert their influence, really continue their influence in Latin America and the Caribbean, uh, and that has potentially deleterious long-term effects on U.S. interests and values in the region. So after almost two years now of living with COVID, this hearing is an opportunity to consider our successes and failures in responding to the pandemic in the Americas and what we can do to continue to improve our efforts in the region. I'm hopeful that testimony from our panels of witnesses, both from the State Department 
and outside experts can help us better understand these vital issues and chart a path forward. And I now want to turn it over to my ranking member, Senator Rubio, for his remarks before I introduce our first panel. Well, thank you for, for holding this hearing. And um, as the former chairman of this committee who had to read that long title, we could never come up with an acronym. So if you can, that would be great. But, um, but I appreciate you both being here today. You know, the, we're coming up on the two-year anniversary of that day that patients in Wuhan, China, first publicly reported symptoms of a disease that we now know has swept and changed the world. And, and no region's been hit harder, as the chairman said, than Latin America, and the Caribbean in particular, not just in terms of the numbers of those that have been uh, afflicted by the disease and ultimately killed by this virus, but also the, the effects that it's had on unemployment, on rising poverty, on political instability. It's been pretty dramatic. And, and that what has done is it's made the, the region ripe. Um, and vulnerable to malign actors uh, to come in and try to leverage them. We've seen that, of course, from the Chinese Communist Party. We've seen it from Putin's Russia. And, and now even Cuba uh, appears to be threatening to get into that game, uh, uh, basically exploiting access to a vaccine in the absence of a better alternative to extract concessions from, from different countries in the region. And, and they've frankly made no effort to hide the fact uh, that these vaccines come with strings attached. One example is Paraguay. In April of, of this year, Paraguay had its largest outbreak wave of, of COVID cases, and uh, the Chinese Communist Party's diplomats made it very clear that they would only deliver vaccines to Paraguay if, if they severed ties with Taiwan. And in Brazil, uh, there seems to have been some success in convincing Brazilian officials to allow Huawei to uh, compete to develop the, the 5G network. And strong evidence of that is the fact that two weeks after Brazil's communication minister went to Beijing to ask for vaccines, he reversed his decision to ban Huawei from competing. And then, of course, uh, Putin's Russia has gotten into this as well, providing really millions of dubious and effective, you know, du dubious Sputnik vaccines to countries around the region. And I say dubious because there's been cases now where what's in that little vial is actually not any vaccine, much less an effective one. After delivering vaccines to Bolivia, uh, the uh, president uh, of Bolivia agreed to reactivate a Russian nuclear power plant project and to allow uh, Russia access to Bolivia's uh, lithium reserves and, and their natural gas. And now, on top of all this, we face the, the Cuban regime with its uh, fake Abdallah vaccine, which we know nothing about in terms of its effectiveness or what long-term consequences it might have. And, uh, and they're now talking about potentially exporting it to other countries that I imagine in return for their silence and our support in the face of really brutal tactics to repress protest. Um, bottom line is that the lives of people across this region are become bargaining chips exchanged in return for higher profits for Chinese tech companies and, and lucrative business deals for uh, Russian oligarchs. So what I hope to learn from our witnesses today is why the U.S. is allowed to go for this to go on for so long in Latin America. Russia delivered its first vaccines in February of 2021. China made its first delivery in March of 21. And uh, President Biden's administration didn't deliver vaccines until June, in a full month after Senator Kane and, and Menendez, who chairs the full committee, and myself sent a letter highlighting the urgent need for vaccines in Latin America. And even now, uh, more than 109 million Chinese vaccines have been delivered. Uh, far more than the 89 million American vaccines that so far have been delivered to the region. So I was glad to see the U.S. announced the donation of approximately 500 million vaccines to 92 countries, uh, but only 10 of those countries were in Latin America and the Caribbean. So I'm very interested in how we came up with a list of who gets these vaccines. I imagine some of it has to do with the capacity to store and deliver, um, and, and some of it uh, 
I'm curious to see how we picked who got it and how much and so forth. So I appreciate you being here today because I, I think it'll be insightful as we look forward uh, to uh, how we move forward on this issue. Thank you. Thank you, Senator Rubio. I'm going to introduce our witnesses now. Um, Kevin O'Reilly is the Deputy Assistant Secretary for State for Western Hemisphere Affairs at the Department of State. Uh, he became the Deputy Assistant Secretary after having served as the Director of the Office of Brazil and Southern Cone Affairs, previously served as DCM at the U.S. Embassy in Panama City, Panama. He's a career member of the U.S. Foreign Service. He's held many other senior-level positions, including the Director of the Office of Mexican Affairs. He served as the White House National Security Council Director for North American Affairs from 2009-2011, served as a um, foreign policy fellow in Senator Durbin's office, and he is a native of Illinois with a master's degree from the U.S. Naval War College in Johns Hopkins, uh, SICE, received his Bachelor of Arts degree from Loyola University. Peter Natiello. Peter Natiello serves as the Acting uh, Assistant Administrator in the U.S. Agency for International Development's Latin American and Caribbean Bureau. Before that, he served as USAID's mission director in Kabul, Afghanistan. He has extensive experience in Latin America with USAID, serving as missions director in El Salvador and Colombia. And from 2003 to 2009, he was in Bolivia, where he was mission director, deputy mission director, and director of the alternative development program at USAID. He's also managed USAID's democracy and conflict mitigation portfolio in Ecuador, where he served as a Peace Corps volunteer and subsequently as a research analyst with the Inter-American Development Bank. Fluent in Spanish and proficient in Portuguese, he has a Bachelor of Arts degree from Colorado College and a Master's of International Affairs from Columbia University. It's great to have both of you before us to discuss this important issue. And I would like to have first uh, Mr. O'Reilly and then uh, Mr. Natiello do opening statements, try to confine them to five minutes. Your full statements will be included in the record, and then we will proceed to questions. I'll just let you know, we're a little bit uncertain about voting schedule today. I think you may see members coming and going based on votes, but uh, I think we should uh, have good attendance over the course of the hearing. This is an important topic. We're glad to have you with us, Mr. O'Reilly. Thank you, Chairman. I'm not sure that mic is on, and if it is, you might want to pull it closer to you just so we can hear you clearly. We've not been using this hearing room very much, and we'll say that the mics could be rusty. <laughs> well, there you go. I hear one now. Sorry about that. Chairman Kane, Ranking Member Rubio, thank you for this opportunity to discuss the Biden-Harris administration's efforts to support Latin America and the Caribbean as they respond to and recover from the COVID-19 pandemic. They make up an important part of our efforts across the globe to save lives, end this pandemic in 2022, and prepare for the next pandemic. COVID-19 has hit the hemisphere hard. And, the worsened, and it has worsened long-standing problems, challenges to public security, confidence in democratic institutions, corruptions, corruption and inequality. Just 8.4% of humanity lives in Latin America and the Caribbean, yet as of the 1st of November, this region has had more than 46 million reported infections, 20% of cases worldwide, 31%
of reported deaths, approximately 1.5 million souls lost. The pandemic hit a continent weakened by anemic growth. The IMF estimated in, its October, in uh, October that the global economy contracted by 3.1% in 2020, but the economies of Latin America and the Caribbean contracted by seven Caribbean nations suffered declines of more than 15%. The IMF projects a return to growth of 5.8% this year, but the shock of the downturn remains. We've donated more vaccines globally than all other countries combined. That includes more than 49 million doses donated in partnership with COVAX or bilaterally to 29 countries in our hemisphere. In September, President Biden announced that the United States would donate an additional half a billion Pfizer-BioNTech doses through the COVAX facility to low- and middle-income countries, bringing the total commitment to those countries to 1.2 billion. Beneficiaries include countries in Latin America and the Caribbean. We, we share these doses without political conditions or expectations with the purpose of saving lives. Beating back this pandemic requires full vaccination of 60 to 70% of each country's population. Now, the Pan American Health Organization estimates that Latin America and the Caribbean need about 720 million additional doses administered to reach that goal. 13 countries in the region now report over 60% partial vaccination, with several others close behind. But 12 uh, have yet to reach 40% partial vaccination, with about half of those below the 20% full vaccination rate. And we have to help close that gap and do more to ensure equitable vaccine distribution across the hemisphere. We support the rapid rollout of vaccines that meet internationally accepted standards of efficacy and safety because protecting the vulnerable demands a rigor and high standards. Vaccines without sufficient clinical data to demonstrate safety and compelling evidence of efficacy put people at risk and undermine trust. At a time of global vaccine scarcity, uh, some governments turned to suppliers from the People's Republic of China and the Russian Federation. We've seen PRC coercion, ramping up or tapering off supplies based on a willingness to adopt policies favorable to Beijing, a less than admirable wolf at the door form of diplomacy. The PRC has even offered to trade vaccines for changes in political recognition from Taipei to Beijing, a particularly cruel tactic. Uh, Russia has uh, struggled to provide uh, contracted amounts of Sputnik V uh, in a timely fashion to countries from Argentina to even Mr. Maduro's regime in Venezuela. Uh, and the Russians have yet to provide adequate documentation to secure an emergency use listing from the World Health Organization. Now, next year, when the United States hosts the Ninth Summit of the Americas, the president intends to place health and the state of our health systems high on the, on the agenda. Uh, we need to do work together to do better on, on health security with transparency and accountability. As COVID has reminded us, people's lives depend on it. Congressional support for these uh, donations has saved lives, prevented and reduced the severity of human suffering, and helped our hemisphere begin the long and arduous process of recoming, recovering from the worst of this pandemic, building back building back better than before. 
We look forward to working with you to promote health resilience, security, and equity in our hemisphere. I thank you for your time, and I welcome your questions and comments. Thank you, Mr. Natiello. Chairman Kane, Ranking Member Rubio, uh, members of the subcommittee, thank you for the invitation to testify today. I'm grateful to, for the committee's support for USAID's work, particularly as we respond to COVID-19 in Latin America and the Caribbean. Countries of Latin America and the Caribbean have been hit hard by the pandemic, as we've heard this morning. Although it's home only to 8% to of the world's population, the region has seen 20% of all cases and just over 30% of all global deaths. The American people have demonstrated incredible generosity and solidarity with our neighbors providing more than $500 million for USAID's COVID-19 response in Latin America and the Caribbean since March 2020. Since the beginning of the pandemic, USAID has moved quickly to mobilize new health assistance, respond to emerging food and protection needs, adapt to current programming, and plan for the long-term impacts that we know will plague the region for years to come. I commend our staff and our partners and all those on the front lines who are working relentlessly to help those most in need. On the health front, our efforts include working with health ministries to minimize the risk of transmission and prevent and control infections in healthcare facilities, training and equipping rapid response teams to better track and record cases, helping countries to provide the, the public with reliable, verifiable information that keeps citizens informed about how best to protect themselves and each other, and providing oxygen uh, to treat patients in the most dire need. Of course, the availability and wider distribution of vaccines has been key to the region's significant strides this year. In the last five months, the United States has provided more than 50 million vaccines throughout the region. These vaccines are being provided safely, equitably, and with no political strings attached. USAID is providing crucial assistance that has enabled countries to receive and distribute these life-saving vaccines. Our efforts to get shots in arms include support for cold chain management, training of vaccinators and establishment of vaccination sites, support for communications campaigns to help overcome vaccine hesitancy, and work with ministries of health to better track vaccination rates. Just last month, I saw progress on the health front firsthand when I, vis when I visited Medellin, Colombia. The Department of Antioquia, of which Medellin is the capital, was severely impacted by COVID-19, seeing daily cases in excess of 4,000 and a 98% ICU occupancy rate in June 2021. Thanks to the government of Colombia's concerted response, which included distribution of, distribution of vaccines donated by the United States and others purchased by Colombia through COVAX, as well as USAID support for vaccine distribution, Antioquia was able to significantly reduce infection prevalence and death rates, um, decreasing from 4,000 in June to 301 recorded infections a day in mid-October. Region-wide infection rates and death rates due to COVID-19 have decreased by 84% over the past five months. The region's economy has been noted as also improving, is also improving with the International Monetary Fund projecting an economic rebound of 6.3% in 2021, second only to emerging and developing economies in Asia. This is the kind of progress that USAID seeks to support throughout the region. As we've addressed the critical health situation, we've been keenly aware of the secondary impacts of the pandemic, including job losses and kids out of the classroom, growing food insecurity, increases in gender-based violence, and contraction of civil liberties and rights. USAID continues to address long-term challenges in the region through programs that 
foster inclusive economic growth, address climate change, improve citizen security, promote respect for human rights, fight corruption and promote transparency, elevate the voices of civil society and other community leaders, and enable diversity and participation by historically marginalized groups. Our efforts have not gone unnoticed. Partner nations regularly recognize and thank the United States for our steadfast support in the face of this unprecedented emergency. Solidarity, the solidarity reminds us all that this pandemic affects the entire world. We must continue to be good neighbors, partners, and friends so that we can overcome this challenge together. We're safe when everyone is safe. Even as we maintain our vigilance and, con and continue to respond to the virus, we remain committed to helping countries adapt to new realities pre presented by the pandemic and shore up hard-won development gains. Ultimately, we seek to help the people of the region live in peace and prosperity and realize a more healthy, hopeful future. Mr. Chairman, Senator Rubio, thanks again for the opportunity to testify. I welcome your questions. We'll have a five-minute round of questions for the uh, witnesses, and I would just like to begin by asking you both this question. The U.S. total delivery of vaccines to um, the region is about 49 million, and that is significantly behind uh, Chinese vaccine delivery to the region. We, the three of us did join together in a letter to the administration many months ago saying there are a lot of reasons to prioritize the Americas. Um, one, because of family and other ties between the United States and folks in the Americas, a disease that knows no borders. If we prioritize the region, um, it will uh, keep us healthier. Um, second, um, the, uh, the, the follow-on consequences of this health pandemic in the region produce economic and other instabilities that can be a push factor for migration. We're dealing with tough migration issues. It would help us deal with those issues if we were more forward-leaning in helping nations in the region uh, access vaccines. Um, and third, we pointed out and have been very aware of the efforts of China and Russia to use vaccines in the region and why would we want to be on our back foot while they're racing ahead. What explains why, um, even though we are the single uh, biggest donor of vaccines in the world, what explains why our vaccine donations to the Americas, which has suffered so disproportionately, still are lagging behind China? Mr. Chairman, uh, one of the factors is the, as you mentioned in your own opening remarks, is it was the, the priority that we, we had to give to domestic uh, requirements. Uh, secondly, that we went through rigorous uh, procedures to make sure that anything that we donated was, uh, was safe and reliable and uh, encompassed some of the sorts of uh, 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 the broader support elements that, uh, that Mr. Natiello uh, was just referring to. Um, uh, when you add these along with, uh, there are also commercial deals that companies have, and some of those are also American providers. We've tried to focus our donations on the areas most in need, and we're taking a look at, at, the, at the hard numbers, at the facts, the, the case rates, the death rates, the, the, the current vaccination rates in particular countries. And, um, and to respond to surges in the most agile way that we can to make sure that the vaccines that we, um, we donate are uh, safe, reliable, and are turned from uh, vaccines into vaccinations, because vaccine isn't any, any good to anyone until it gets into somebody's shoulder. 
and gets let, it to someone's let, arm. Let me push a little bit farther on that. I, I actually understand why we might have been slow out of the blocks to do deliveries in June when other nations were faster because we were putting a priority first on making sure folks in the United States were vaccinated. And we also have quality standards about vaccines that, uh, that are superior to what China and Russia have. And that encompasses some delay that I understand. But if I just look at um, the, the amount of vaccines delivered by the United States into the region, you would think one of the factors might be, well, if this is a region that's experiencing 30% of the deaths in the world, then you know why wouldn't 30% of American vaccines be going into the region? I, I haven't done the math on it, but it seems to me that vastly less than 30% of American vaccines uh, going abroad have gone into the region. And so I sort of wonder about the, uh, and Senator Rubio mentioned this in his opening comments, what are the, the allocation factors that the administration is using um, and might we expect to see, particularly in the run-up to the summit uh, for the Americas, might we expect to see uh, even a more aggressive approach uh, from the United States in terms of delivering vaccines to the region? Uh, I can say that as we prepare for the summit, as we look through 2022, uh, uh, the president has made a commitment to try to beat back this uh, pandemic uh, worldwide. Uh, by um, by the time the world next convenes uh, for at the U.S. Gen at the United UN General Assembly, excuse me, and that uh, we want to push through to the summit as well. I, my time is about up. I'm going to yield to Senator Rubio. Well, I, again, I just want to continue to touch upon what is the when we determine who gets what when we make this big purchase of vaccines and we start sending them, what's the criteria we use to determine this country's gonna get it, this country's not, this country's gonna get X amount, this country's gonna get that amount. Is there a criteria that's being used to determine how this is being distributed globally, and in particular, uh, how that impacts this region? I think that the goal is um, looking at capacity, how we can maximize the number of vaccine doses available uh, in a country and do so equitably for the greatest number of, of countries and the greatest number of people at risk within those societies. Um, they take a look at, at the data on, in terms of surges and, and how, to, how to mitigate uh, potential surges, how to cut off surges when they've already appeared, and giving priority to protecting people in the, in the healthcare uh, sectors who need to care for those who are ill. Um, so we try to base it on the, on the best and most reliable public health data that we have available. Um, and uh, we do try to give priority as well to areas at risk. If I could just add to that, uh, Senator, uh, we look at a variety of factors, including case rates, death rates, and hospitalizations, current vaccination rates in a country, again, uh, responding to surges, in a country's ability to receive vaccines and put shots into arms, uh, as well as U.S. national and economic security. And so when you say, obviously, the case numbers are what they are. Everyone's had a surge, some bigger than others, depends on how much they're testing, how much they're monitoring. The hospitalization rates are often dependent on whether there are hospitals or hospital availability. What I'm hearing, though, potentially, is that part of it is if a country doesn't have, for example, a healthcare system that can actually organize people and get people vaccinated. If a country doesn't have the ability to store vaccines and get them into, get them to people fast enough before they expire, that that I would imagine is a big factor in how we're determining this. 
donating 10 million vaccines to a country that doesn't have healthcare infrastructure to distribute them, and therefore they're going to go bad, they're going to expire, they're not going to get to people. That's not, is that a major factor in how this is being decided? So those are important criteria. Um, and uh, th that's precisely why USAID is focused on strengthening health systems um, in our partner nations because we want them to be able to not only receive the vaccine, but clearly to get shots in arms, which is why we do things like uh, support the cold chain, uh, support training of uh, vaccinators, uh, support uh, communications campaigns to overcome vaccine hesitancy. And in some countries, you know, the level of readiness far exceeds that in other countries. So the challenge, for instance, in a country like Haiti is very, is very, very different than uh, a country like um, uh, Brazil or Honduras or, or so, so these are the kind of things that we look at. This, these are the kind of things that we apply U.S. technical assistance to, to help get those vaccines in arms. To help now, the, the other thing I wanted to ask is, you know, both the, the Kremlin and the Communist Party in China are engaged uh, globally in a large-scale disinformation campaign trying to discredit the, the, the American origin vaccines, particularly Moderna and, and Pfizer, um, and then and promote their own. And... Um, so what, what are we doing in the region in particular? I think there's a broader communication issue. We've seen the, you know, the RT, Spanish version, has grown an audience, unfortunately, and it's, a, it's a, a, a big challenge in the region that we have to confront as well. But what are we doing to counter that in particular, this sort of disinformation campaign about vaccines, specifically in Latin America? First off, sir, bringing light to exactly what you spoke about. You can't play whack-a-mole uh, on every bit of disinformation. Uh, what you have to do is make sure that you bring true facts, um, accurate information. You have to do it repetitively. Uh, and you have to make sure that you work to get those messages out to communities. I think Peter could probably speak a little bit more on the, the, the details of how we do that. But the, the, the fundamental principle is to you, you, you have to beat bad information which is rife, and disinformation, which is rife and has been motivated uh, uh, from, uh, from Russia in particular, but also from China. And you have to, you have to flood the zone with, with better, more reliable information and make sure that people who are trusted in the communities all over this hemisphere, uh, where we're having, their governments are having uptake problems, um, uh, bring that information to their publics. So that, um, so that they overcome this, um, this challenge. Senator Menendez. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, you and the ranking member. I appreciate you holding this hearing on a very important topic. Um, you know, uh, Deputy Assistant Secretary O'Reilly, the, the pandemic exposed many of the region's weaknesses, including widening social inequalities widespread informality, growing environmental risks, a gender-based violence epidemic, and weak healthcare and education institutions. When you pair that with massive population displacement and efforts by certain leaders to systematically dismantle, dismantle democratic institutions, I'm concerned that the next decade in the hemisphere will be a turbulent one, unless the United States, the international communities, and our partners in the region are strategic in addressing these increasingly complex challenges. Now, from my own perspective, 
the administration's vaccine diplomacy and policy in the Western Hemisphere has been a failure. Let me give you an example. I was talking to a president in the hemisphere, and he said to me, I am pro-American. But in the midst of the pandemic, I wanted to buy. I wasn't even looking for donations of vaccines. I wanted to buy vaccines for my people. I couldn't get anywhere with the U.S. government. China sold them the vaccines. Maybe less efficient, but if you've got nothing, then you'll take something at the end of the day. I am privatizing for the first time our um, energy infrastructure. Try to get America interested in the possibilities. China comes along and says, we'll buy the bonds. We're having challenges with the IMF, which is a problem that is beyond this country that I'm referring to. It's hemispheric. Because look at what we did as a government to ultimately deal with the economic challenges of the pandemic, how much money we pumped into the economy and to help families. But not every country has that wherewithal. And yet the IMF is creating a series of conditions that they insist without creating a smoothing period so that these countries can get through this difficult time and the economic consequences of the COVID pandemic. So the Chinese come to this president and say, okay, we lend to you at 1%. Now, we missed the boat on vaccines in the Western Hemisphere. And all of us wrote to you, uh, to you meaning the administration, urging you to do a much different, take a much different course. You can have all the calculuses you want. I can create the, the little boxes and checks to say that we systematically did it this way. But the reality is, in our own hemisphere, in our own front yard, with all of the nexus of family and trade and migration, in our own interests, forget about being a good neighbor, in our own interests, it made eminent sense to significantly deploy the vaccine in the hemisphere. We failed. China was in there. They got the goodwill and uh, we fail. So now the question is, how do we deal with the aftermath of that failure in the context of the economic challenges that are facing these countries? So can you tell us how you're working with the Treasury Department to ensure that the United States uses its voice and its vote at the IMF and the World Bank to ensure greater flexibility and increase access to resources for these developing countries as they pursue their post-COVID-19 uh, recovery? Well, thank you. Uh, thank you, uh, Senator, for the, for the question. I mean, one of the things that um, the administration's doing is you know, working with other members of the International Monetary Fund to um, develop the Resilience and, and Sustainability Trust over at the, at the IMF and seeking also uh, additional uh, or authorization to lend uh, 21 billion to poor and uh, low-income uh, countries, and, and, and putting a focus, particularly on areas which have been uh, really walloped by this uh, the, this first year and a half to two years of the pandemic, small islands uh, economies, and there's a particular focus 
in doing so on, on the Caribbean. And, um, and I think that's going to be uh, one, uh, one significant process underway. Uh, we also work very closely um, uh, with the uh, Inter-American uh, Development Bank. Um, and uh, you know, I also have responsibilities for preparing for the, the Summit of the Americas uh, next year. And um, uh, we have a process underway of uh, reviewing, I know, keen interest that you and other members of this committee have in the future of our... Uh, Mr. Chairman, if I may, just... Uh, this, so I, I appreciate all of that, but here, here's the point. Mm -hmm. If we do not use our voice and our vote at the IMF and the World Bank, you will see more of what you saw in Colombia. Colombia is being squeezed by the IMF. The, the Duke administration responded by doing a series of fiscal issues uh, that the IMF wanted to see, and there was social unrest. If you do not, I'm not talking about people walking away from their obligations. I'm talking about creating a smoothing period so that they can get through what we are getting through as a country, but they do not have the wherewithal to get to as a country so that, in fact, they can then meet their obligations. If we don't do that, we're going to see enormous social unrest, and we might as well turn the hemisphere over to authoritarian figures because they will say the way to solve your problems is not through this democratic process but through authoritarianism, which is unfortunately rampant. And I'm glad you raised the IDB as the last point I'll make. Uh, uh, all of us here have been advocating for a capital increase for the Inter-American Development Bank as part of the U.S. effort to support the region's economic recovery. Uh, and I thought this administration would embrace our bipartisan effort to do exactly that because if, if you want to deal with China in terms of its pervasive presence in the hemisphere, you create the wherewithal to meet the challenge of what they are doing in the hemisphere by an institution like the IDB uh, and by the DFC and others. Uh, at the end of the day, why is it that the administration has not embraced a 10th capital increase? My understanding, Senator, is that the issue remains under review, and um, we certainly have had discussions about this with our colleagues over at the Treasury Department, and, uh, uh, and we do recognize the absolutely essential role that the American Development Bank plays in this hemisphere, and that uh, it needs to be uh, able to act in the most ro robust way possible within its authority. Well, while we are navel-gazing uh, about this issue, it seems to me it's rather straightforward. Uh, China uh, is displacing uh, our influence in the region, and we have no tools to effectively deal with that. So maybe we can stop looking at our navel, figure out how we are going to support an increase and under what conditions, and then get the IDB with the U.S. representative there to start engaging in the hemisphere in a world in a way that can turn the dynamics around. Because I'm telling you, uh, as someone who has spent 30 years uh, in not only in foreign affairs, but most specifically focused on the hemisphere, uh, we, we are losing and losing fast. This is not just this administration, but nonetheless, uh, it is this administration that has the power to change it, uh, and it should. Thank you for your indulgence, Mr. Chairman. 
uh, second round of questions. I have two topics that I would like to raise. Um, help the committee understand the decision makers on allocation of American vaccines. So there's criteria and there's factors, but we, we are the most generous in the world totally. But who is making the decisions about allocations to countries and regions? Ultimately, the decisions are the president's. But is this a State Department function? Is it a, you know, a, a, a multi-agency roundtable? Help us understand this. Thank you for the question, uh, Mr. Chair. Uh, so the process to determine vaccine, uh, vaccine provision uh, internationally is led by the National Security Council uh, and the White House COVID-19 teams. Uh, it does include um, uh, uh, inputs from USAID, uh, from the State Department, HHS, uh, and the CDC. Uh, that's, that's my understanding of, uh, of that process. Do you know who's the leader of, at the NSC of this uh, allocation decision-making process? Well, it's the NSC COVID team, but I can't tell you exactly who the person is. I don't know if my colleague, Das Riley, has a... Has Mr. O'Reilly, do you know who at the NSC has this uh, billet? I, I will confess that it is somewhere on the tip of the tongue. I cannot, I cannot pull it up at this moment. I'm, I'll ask it for the record, but if you think of it uh, in the next couple of minutes, Absolute, please, please let us know. Because again, I mean, there are many factors that you would use, but if you just look at the critical nature of the Americas, the connection between the Americas and the United States and the death toll in the Americas as a percentage of the global death toll, it just still seems like the allocation of vaccines is pretty out of whack with what the, um, the, the threat in the region and the threat to the United States is. Second question, um, one of the things that we can do to really help any region is, is inspire local production of vaccines. So the Pan American Health Organization in September announced that it had selected two biomedical centers in Argentina and Brazil to develop and produce COVID vaccines. And China's Sinovac Biotech also announced in August that they would open a manufacturing facility in Chile in the first half of 2022. What, what is the U.S. doing, if anything, to support local development of vaccines in the Americas? Well, I've certainly seen and I've heard directly from colleagues, counterparts in uh, governments from Argentina to, to Colombia. I know also expressions of interest in, um, in Mexico and elsewhere uh, that they have taken a look at the circumstances in which our hemisphere has found itself and these long and uh, unreliable, uh, sometimes politically unreliable, uh, supply chains concern them deep, uh, deeply. And so um, uh, we've certainly entered into discussion. Just recently, we sent down, actually the administration sent down, uh, a, uh, a team led by uh, our colleagues from HHS and CDC to, uh, to dive deep into the topic in Colombia, for example, and take a look at the kinds of uh, regulatory frameworks, the types of protections of intellectual property, the types of uh, technical training, uh, the standards that they would need. And we've had similar discussions uh, with uh, perhaps not at the same depth, but we've had similar discussions uh, uh, over the course of this pandemic elsewhere in, in South America, I, I know, and um, to try to figure out or help people figure out how they need to adapt their policies and their investment environments to attract those kinds of investments. And it's a priority 
uh, also because it's a good way to create good, reliable jobs and uh, strengthen connections and ties with the U.S. and the United States industry. Senator Rubio. Um, Mr. O'Reilly, just we have you here today. I wanted to take this opportunity to talk about the Summit of Democracies uh, that's coming up in December. Um, the uh, interim gov the, the government of interim President Juan Guaido, we recognize that, that the official U.S. policy remains that that is the legitimate uh, government in Venezuela. Is that correct? We rec yeah, that is correct. Um, why isn't Venezuela on the list and, and his government uh, on the list of, of countries that are being invited to the summit of democracies? Or has that changed? Um, the, um, the White House makes the final calls as to how to organize this White House um, uh, scheduled and, and structured event. Um, I don't uh, I'm not aware that the final uh, list of participants and uh, and speakers has been has been has been completed. Um, uh, we certainly have not invited every um, government on in uh, in the hemisphere or in the globe to this event. Um, we've uh, it's it will be a, a representative group of uh, government and non-government uh, non-governmental officials and representatives. Um, and it is the first phase of, uh, of a two-phase uh, summit process, uh, which will uh, end in, a, in an in-person event next year. And it's a fundamental, its principles are a fundamental through line as well for our Summit of the Americas preparations. Oh, no, I understand all that. My, po my point is, if it, the U.S. policy is that the interim government of President Guaido is a legitimate government, and we are trying to strengthen both the leverage and credibility of the pro-democracy movement in Venezuela, not inviting them, even in an initialist, uh, to a summit of democracies is certainly not helpful to that, and, and, and I, would I would argue is, is quite damaging. And so I guess my point is, uh, I, don't, I get that the White House makes the final decision, but I'm curious, what is the State Department's position on it, or what if you could share with us, as uh, the State Department against them being included in the list? Are you involved in the formation of the list? I would imagine that they're talking to, um, uh, to, to, the, uh, to, to you as the Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for the Western Hemisphere about who should be on that list. Yeah, we've, we've been in uh, consultations with the organizers of, within the administration of the event pretty much from the get-go, Senator. And... Um, First, to, to the fundamental question. Look, we recognize the National Assembly, uh, and the National Assembly decided uh, to elect its, uh, uh, Juan Guaido as its president. Given that Nicolás Maduro st stole the presidential election, manipulated the prior uh, election for election, we could call it last year, for the, uh, for the National Assembly, and has skewed the table so rawly uh, that Sunday's event uh, will in no way uh, represent anything that's free and fair. Uh, um, we, um, we understand where um, democratic principles rest in terms of our relationship with Venezuela, and we understand who's blunting the democratic aspirations of the Venezuelan people. So then why aren't they on the list? That, that, that's all great. Why isn't that reflected, I would imagine, in the first iteration of the list that's been put out there, you would think that it would be at the top of the list, not an afterthought or 
we'll wait and see to see what we're going to do. Uh, my, my question, I mean, do, do you favor them being on the list? Is there anybody in the State Department that's against them being on the list? That's what I'm trying to get at. Why aren't they on there? Uh, if, if, is it, I mean, I don't, I can't imagine, given everything you've just said, that we've forgotten about how important this would be for them to be included. Senator, I must say, in terms of the regional focus of my uh, portfolio, it's, uh, it's my highest priority to work to uh, support the democratic aspirations of the Venezuelan people. Um, it's, uh, I think, exceptionally important uh, that um, Mr. Mr. Maduro accept the reality of what he's done to his country and to come back to the table uh, to uh, negotiate uh, a fairer, a more democratic, a more open society. No, I understand, but that doesn't explain why Guaido is not on, or the whoever they choose as their, you know, whether it's him or somebody else to be the Speaker of the National Assembly, why they aren't on the list, given everything you've just said. I understand the concern, and I'll, I'll bring it back with okay. me, Senator. Um, I think my time is up, unless... Um, I want to thank both witnesses on this first panel for your questions. We may have questions for the record to submit as well. I'll make an announcement about that at the end of the hearing. Uh, should there be questions for the record, we would encourage you to be prompt in responses. But thank you so much for your service and for appearing today. And with that, uh, let's get the witnesses from the second panel to come out and, and uh, we'll, we'll proceed with them. Thank you very much. Thank you.